Good morning. Today, as we continue our summer theme, Sacred Ordinary Life, we'll be reflecting on one of my favorite passages in Scripture in which the disciples, as usual, have their expectations completely turned upside down. As Jesus ascends into heaven, the disciples who previously thought that they were at the end of their journey realize that things are just getting started. So listen now to a word from God from the first chapter of Acts. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom of Israel? He replied, It is not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. When he had said this, as they were watching, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going, and they were gazing up toward heaven, suddenly two men in white robes stood by them. They said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up toward the heavens? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be holy and acceptable to you, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So this summer we've been exploring the sacredness in our ordinary lives all of the many ways in which we see the divine in small moments. And if I were to sum up my own spirituality in one theme, it would be this one. Because I I think I truly relish the small things. Daily walks in the neighborhood, pausing to watch bees, cooking a really good meal. I love that we are exploring these ideas this summer. But I'm going to be really honest. It's nearly impossible to remind myself of the holiness of every moment when I am trapped in gridlock on Central Expressway on a hot July afternoon. Delighting in the small things only goes so far when I am inching my car forward two feet at a time only to witness that shameless person who has decided that laws are merely suggestions zoom around me in the shoulder. Maybe you struggle with this, too, or some other form of road rage. Sitting in traffic is a particularly frustrating and yet ordinary occurrence that serves to remind me that I am incredibly impatient. So out of necessity, I've developed a number of coping mechanisms for this exact situation. Most of the time, turning on the radio is a sufficient distraction, but when things are really bad, I resort to daydreaming, particularly picturing myself completing items on my bucket list, wishing I were somewhere else. One particular dream of mine has always been to see the northern lights 
or the aurora borealis, that incredible wonder of vibrantly colored lights that dance, that are best seen in the far northern hemisphere above snow-covered fields in Finland or Norway or Alaska. A few years ago, I was traveling to France, and I booked a 20-hour layover in Iceland. I was utterly convinced that I would see the northern lights. That day, as I moved from activity to activity, giant geyser to geothermal hot spring, I couldn't help but eye the skies, as if I would suddenly catch a glimpse of the northern lights. And even as I sleepily boarded my flight 20 hours later, I kept my eyes focused out the window, growing more frustrated by the minute that this random, natural phenomenon had not occurred in the very short time frame that I had allowed. It turns out that this is becoming quite the common story. A few months ago, a writer for the New Yorker magazine published his own account of seeking after the Northern Lights. This writer describes his eight-day journey from Nordic town to Nordic town, wading amidst seas of single-minded tourists who were ready with their cameras at a moment's notice. On his first night in Finland, he stays in a glass igloo hotel where you can lie back and watch the lights under a reindeer fur coverlet, which is so comfortable that he falls asleep. <laughs> to kill time during the day, the writer ventures out into the frozen tundra for ice fishing and cross-country skiing, all while checking the aurora forecast on his iPhone. But the second, third, fourth, fifth, and sixth days bring no sightings of the lights. The writer forces himself to stay awake long past when he wants to go to bed, just in case. He looks for the lights around a campfire with warm drinks, on a catamaran in Norway, and in a small hut with sled runners dragged by a snowmobile onto a frozen pond. He goes to every extreme and spares no expense to try to catch a glimpse, but by the last day of his trip, he still has not seen any signs of the Northern Lights. Finally, on the last evening of his trip, in a very scenic parking lot, with a bus full of companions, it finally happens. The clouds part, and the lights begin to put on a show that the writer describes as mind-blowing, beyond description and surprisingly emotional. He is utterly astonished. Someone takes a photo of him watching the lights in which he wears the stunned look of a non-believer witnessing a miracle. But what is most interesting to me in this account is not the final revelation of the miracle, but the writer's growing impatience as the days of the trip pass with no sightings, complete with a terrifying reindeer taxi collision. This wild goose chase of a trip makes the writer wonder if he is somehow unworthy of seeing the northern lights. He wrestles with this sense of entitlement. He's been ready and waiting for seven days, after all. Surely he deserves to catch a glimpse. 
Each day, he grows more and more frustrated and less and less convinced that his waiting will pay off. I imagine that this is the state of mind of the disciples in the first chapter of Acts. For 40 days after his resurrection, Jesus has been appearing to this group of disciples, speaking and teaching specifically about the kingdom of God. And for 40 days, Jesus tells them, wait here, stay put, God's promise is coming. And so this moment is one of great anticipation. Jesus has brought them all together, and just like that bus full of tourists in a parking lot, they are merely waiting for the clouds to part and the light show to begin. Because the disciples expect that this is the moment when everything will be reconciled. This is when Jesus, the Messiah, will reign in power, when every knee will bow and the kingdom of God will come in fullness, when justice will be rendered and all will be made well. They have incredibly high expectations. But for good reason, Jesus has really talked this up. So they dare to ask one last question. Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom of Israel? In their minds, it's a rhetorical question because what would they be doing gathered together with Jesus if he were not about to restore the kingdom of Israel? But Jesus, ever the mysterious one, answers them cryptically. It is not for you to know the times or the periods that the Father has set by his own authority. And then Jesus is lifted up into a cloud and he ascends into heaven. And the disciples are left on the ground, gazing up at the skies in disbelief and confusion. And they linger, thinking maybe this is just part of the show. But two men in white robes come by and confirm their worst suspicions. They question, why are you standing looking up at the heavens? This Jesus who has been taken up from you will come in the same way as you saw him go into the heaven. And suddenly, the wild goose chase of following Jesus for three years comes to an inconclusive end. After his dramatic ascension into the skies, things are remarkably the same on the ground. Can you imagine the frustration of that day? Can you imagine the confusion and the disappointment? Perhaps you've experienced something similar. Waiting in holy expectation only to have your hopes go unfulfilled. It's difficult to continue waiting when waiting seems fruitless. Theologically speaking, when paired with the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus is the moment in Scripture that we mark as the initiation of the kingdom of God. In Christ's miraculous resurrection from the dead and ascension into heaven, the kingdom of God becomes a present reality that will be made complete in the second coming of Christ. In other words, the kingdom is here and is also still to come. In the time when the New Testament scriptures were written, the disciples and those who followed after them believed that Jesus' return was imminent. 
After bearing the disappointment of the Ascension Day, not quite ending as they expected, the disciples still held on to hope that Jesus' second coming was just days or weeks away, that their waiting would surely bear fruit in their lifetime. 2,000 years later, we're still a people who hold on to holy expectation for the return of Christ. Like the disciples, we hold on to hope that Jesus will come again. And yet, over the years, the church has diverged on how we wait. You see, waiting does strange things to people. Waiting makes us anxious. In the midst of waiting, we seek ways to assert control. Because waiting, especially for something as monumental and world-changing as the second coming of Christ, can bring about feelings of helplessness and an utter lack of control. The church has lived in this nebulous time for 2,000 years, and throughout these years, an untold number of theologies have emerged that seek to predict the exact day and hour of Jesus' second coming. Wise theologians and televangelists alike, from mainstream denominations to radical cults, have made calculations and claims for specific days that Jesus will return, only to have these days pass uneventfully. And even now, a number of Christian traditions hold fast to the idea that the second coming will be extremely soon, this year or the next, imminent in our lifetime. But what often accompanies this theological belief is the dangerous practice of interpreting tragic world events like wars or natural disasters as signs that surely signal the end of the world, and therefore as reasons to excitedly await and prepare for the return of Jesus. The very real and very horrific brokenness of the world should never be a cause for rejoicing. And beyond the very real dangers of espousing a theology that seeks to predict the time of Jesus' return, these ways of understanding the second coming strip the believer of an essential gift of faith, which is mystery. After all, remember Jesus' final words to the disciples? The time of the second coming is not for us to know. Our tradition strives to live into the mystery of Christ's return, to take seriously the fact that we cannot know the day or the hour. So the story of Christ's ascension is like a giant ellipsis that leaves the disciples wondering, now what? And as inheritors of the faith, we live in open-ended story. We are a people of the now and the not yet. Because we know that the kingdom of God is here now, we see glimpses of its beauty here on earth. And yet we are more than aware that the kingdom of God is not yet here. The news cycle alone shows us a broken need, a broken world in need of redemption. So in Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God has come and is still coming. We are journeying toward an unknown destination with no answer to the burning question, how much longer till we get there?
This is who we are. We are a people who live in the now and the not yet. We are a people who wait. And believe it or not, I think that is some of the best news that we could receive in our sacred, ordinary life. Because for all of the anxiety that waiting can bring about in us, waiting is also an invitation to let go of our need to be in control. Waiting is an invitation to embrace mystery and to create beauty. Waiting is an invitation to be present and active where we are. But in all of this, it is worth noting that not all waiting is holy, that some waiting is unjust. As we live in the not yet, awaiting God's kingdom still to come, we know that many things are not as they should be. And waiting should not make us passive to the brokenness of the world. So like the disciples who acted to heal suffering and break down barriers right then and right there, it is our responsibility to speak against unjust waiting, particularly now, as children and families wait and suffer unjustly in detention centers in our own state. Not all waiting is holy. And yet the holy waiting it seems to me, is the ordinary waiting. And the ordinary waiting is where things grow, like seeds sprouting under the surface of the soil, like ideas forming and connecting, like cheese ripening and maturing, like wine fermenting and aging, like bread growing to fullness in kneading and proofing and baking. We grow and we change when we wait. And we are reminded, even when we are sitting in traffic, that in our waiting we are living into the mystery of the now and the not yet. And in our waiting we are practicing the greater waiting and living in hopeful expectation of the promised day when the kingdom will come in fullness. All thanks be to God. Amen.